0: your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 21 to 26, a message I've entitled, The Value of the Old Testament. Why in the world do we have the Old Testament? Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, please stand with me out of honor to God and his word as I read. Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia in answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children." But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Thank you. may be seated now. The value of the Old Testament. First of all, I want you to know that the Old Testament has historical value. It has historical value. A lady was on an airline reading her Bible, and the man sitting next to her gave a little chuckle and asked, you don't really believe all that stuff in there, do you? Of course I do. It's the Bible, she said. What about that guy that was swallowed by a whale, he asked. Oh, Jonah, yes, I believe that. It's in the Bible, she said. Well, how do you suppose he survived all that time inside of the whale, the man asked. She replies, well, I don't really know. I guess when I get to heaven, I'll ask him, the lady said. The man says sarcastically, well, what if he isn't in heaven? She replies, then you can ask him. (laughs) There is historical value in the Old Testament. Paul mentions here an historical account from Genesis. He's talking about Abram's legal but immoral transgression with Hagar. I want to say that again. It was a legal but immoral transgression with Hagar. Now, God had promised Abram he would be the father of a great nation. I shared with you Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 this morning. Well, this is Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2 where God, before he promises that that Abraham is going to be a blessing to the whole world. He says, well, I'm going to bless you too. Verse 2 says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And so God promised Abraham he would be the father of a great nation. You know the story. Abraham and Sarah were old, and they were barren. But Sarah tells Abraham to have a child by her slave, Hagar. That's in Genesis 16 and verse 2. As a result of that union, Ishmael is born and legally belongs to Sarah. Ishmael, Paul says here in chapter 4, is a child according to the flesh. Look down in verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Well, again, you know the story that later on Sarah miraculously conceives giving birth to Isaac. That's in Genesis 21 and verse 2. And Isaac, Paul says, is a child according to the promise. Again, back to verse 23, he says, He who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Well, Sarah tells Abraham to send Ishmael away. And that's in Genesis 21 and verse 10. And so Paul is referring back to the Old Testament to an actual historical account. And what I'm saying to you is there is historical value in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is full of history. The Bible is not a history book, but everywhere it addresses history, it is true. I've often told you the Bible is not a science book, but everywhere it addresses science, it's true. From the creation through to the final consummation, the Bible gives historical Accounts. There is value to the Old Testament, historically speaking. But other than to historians, what value is this history? So people that study history, yeah, they would look at the Bible as as an historical source for their studies. But other than historians, what is the value of this history? Well, first of all, it informs us as to origins. First of all, it informs us to the origins of the inanimate universe. Where did this universe come from? go back to the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's your answer. It is an historical account. But not only does it inform us as the origins of the inanimate universe, but it informs us as the origins of living creatures, even people. Where did all these things that are alive, where did they come from? Again, the Bible gives us that information. Now I don't believe with this joke, the numbers in the joke, just get the joke. There were some tourists in the Chicago Museum of Natural History, and they're marveling at these dinosaur bones. And one of them asked the guard, Can you tell me how old these dinosaur bones are? The guard replies, They are three million, four years, and six months old. The visitor said, Well, that's an awfully exact number. How do you know their age so precisely? The guard answers, well, the dinosaur bones were 3 million years old when I started working here, and that was four and a half years ago. But where did all these living things come from? Go to the Bible. It will tell you. Day 5, day 6, you get all the living things. An historical account. What does science teach? Well, you just need the right chemicals, the right place, maybe a bolt of lightning... And that's where it all came from. No wonder evolution is called a theory. It's ridiculous. And if scientists weren't so anti-God, they'd admit it. Evolution is a theory. Creation is fact. We have an historical account in the first two chapters of Genesis how all this stuff got started. And by the way, I'm not opposed to children being exposed to both Evolution and creation as theories. The the Christian school back in Pennsylvania, I'm still on the school board there, and they teach creation as fact, but they they do teach evolution as a theory. And I think that's important that our students know this is what people believe out there. And it also lets them examine it for the foolishness that it is. I don't think anybody should keep this theory of evolution from their children, from their students. They need to know that's what this lost world believes. Well, other than historians, what values this history? Well, it informs us as the origins. Not only the inanimate universe, the living creatures, but death. Why is there death? Why do people die? Why do animals die? Why, why, where does death come from? Well, we have an historical account. In Genesis 3.19, we find out that Adam and Eve sinned. And God told them, when you eat of this or if you eat of this fruit, you will die. What happened? Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit and that set in motion the wheels of death and it's been with us ever since. But also, this history in the Old Testament informs us as the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict. You know, them folks just can't get along over there. They just can't get along. And why is that? We'll hear from Genesis 4. Go down to verse 29. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. It was true in Paul's day. It's still true in our day. Those folks can't get along, and it goes all the way back to the historical record we have in the book of Genesis. Not only does it inform us as to origins, but the history in the Old Testament informs us and instructs us as to behavior. We can learn from the successes and failures of others. And so we see in the Old Testament there's some characters there that did things pretty well. There's some characters there that really messed up. And we can read that and learn from those successes and failures. I'm sorry my mom isn't here tonight. We wore her out in church this morning. We wore her out. It might have been Golden Corral afterwards. I'm not sure, but something got a hold of her. But if she were here, she would tell you this if you asked her. She would tell you I'm her perfect child. Seriously, she would tell you that I'm her perfect child. And you know why she would say that? Not because she likes to lie in church. But I had two demons for brothers, two older brothers, just demons. They were really a handful for my parents. But I watched my brothers and I learned from them. And I saw how it hurt my parents. And so I determined I'm a little kid and it's not because of my relationship with Christ. It's because I didn't want to hurt mom and dad like my demonic brothers did. And so I did just the opposite. And as a result of learning from them, my mom would tell you to your face, I was her perfect child. So we look back at the Old Testament. We see how people messed up. We say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hurt God. I don't want to hurt my family. And so we can learn from these historical characters and these historical accounts. There's that old saying, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And so if you don't study the successes and failures, particularly the failures of these people in the Old Testament, you may very well end up repeating it in your own life. And so this history, this history is valuable because it informs us as to origins, it instructs us as to behavior, and it showcases consistency. No matter where you're looking in the Old Testament, you will find God's faithfulness, God's love, God's keeping his promises, God's saving his people, and God, uh, God meeting out justice. Because God loves us, but the Bible says he chastens those he loves. And you see that all through this Old Testament history. Not only the consistency of God, but people's consistency. We are consistently sinful. We mess up all the time. And it shows our need for salvation. Consistently. You know, there are churches, they're called New Testament churches. And they preach about Jesus and all that kind of stuff. They would agree with us on all the New Testament stuff, but they don't even crack the Old Testament. Because they say it's of no value. It doesn't apply. That's all stuff. Jesus took care of that on the cross. And so they just rip it out of their Bible. They've got Matthew through Revelation. I'm here to tell you the Old Testament is extremely valuable. First of all, it has historical value. But secondly, I want you to see it has allegorical value. Paul indicates that there is a story behind the history. Notice in verse 4 he says which things are an allegory. For these are actually two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which is bondage, and the other, Jerusalem, which is free. Paul says in this allegory that Hagar stands for the law given on Mount Sinai, which held Jerusalem in bondage even in Paul's day. Hagar was a slave, so her son was a slave. The Jews were in spiritual bondage to their mother, the law. And yet Paul says in this allegory, Sarah stands for grace, symbolized by the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, verse 26, but Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Sarah was free, so her son was free. She is our mother as believers, so we are all free. Now let me issue a warning here. This is not the way to interpret the Old Testament, except where it's done in the New Testament. So many people take the Old Testament and they look for allegory everywhere. They see Christ behind every rock or behind every feast or whatever. They just find him all over the place. You can't do that. But when inspired writers of the New Testament do it, it's okay. Sometimes there's history in the Bible... And we're just supposed to accept it as history. We don't need to find a story behind the history. But in this case, Paul clearly says, there's an allegory. There's a story behind the history, and here's what it is. And Paul goes on to find prophecy in Isaiah 51.4 to back up this allegory. Look in verse 27. He says, for it is written, rejoice. My page is turned here, Sorry. Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate has many more children than she which has a husband. And so this is Isaiah 54, 1 that Paul is quoting. He finds this prophecy backing up his allegory. The barren woman is Christianity. It's going to produce many children, he says. And the wife, Judaism, will have many less children. That's really logical because Judaism was basically limited to Jews. Christianity included Jews and Gentiles, everyone. So it only makes sense when you limit yourself to a very small group, the Jews, you're not going to really have a a lot of followers, a lot of children, as it were, in the allegory. But when you open yourself up to the whole world, which is Christianity, then you can have lots and lots of children. Well, Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, as I mentioned earlier. And so Paul is saying, even so, the law must be cast aside. Faith and works cannot coexist. There are not two ways of salvation. You can't be saved by grace through faith or saved by good works by obeying the law because nobody can obey the law. God has always saved people the same way, by grace through faith. That's it. That's it. And so Paul says... Just as Hagar and Ishmael were cast aside by Abram, so too the law must be cast aside. God God intended the law to be a guide for moral living and God still intends for the law to continue that function. The law was never intended to be a means of finding God's favor. The law was never intended to be a means of salvation. But the Jews had perverted God's intentions for the law. The Judaizers that Paul is dealing with here in Galatians, the Judaizers, because they continue in the Jewish tradition, must be cast aside. And it's quite ironic. The physical descendants of Sarah had become the spiritual descendants of Hagar because they were clinging to the law. And Paul says the law needs to be cast aside. And so what is the value of the Old Testament? Well, there's historical value. There's allegorical value. And then thirdly, there's practical value. There's practical value. We are the children of the promise like Isaac was. Again, back to verse 28. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. We are Abraham's true children. I mentioned this morning, Abraham is the father of our faith because God saved him by grace through faith. And so that got the ball rolling, and everybody ever since has been saved by grace through faith. Look back to chapter 3 and verse 29, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. He says, and if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We believe as Abraham did. Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed, and God counted his faith as righteousness. Righteousness we find our sonship through faith, not biology. God promises that we are saved by grace through faith, not according to the flesh, not according to works. I've shared with you so many times my favorite verses in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. You and I are saved by grace through faith. God hasn't changed, and God hasn't changed the way he saves people. He is consistent. And so there's practical value. We are the children of promise like Isaac was. Secondly, we are persecuted like Isaac was. Look back to verse 29. I know I already read it. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. You may remember the story of of Ishmael and Isaac, but in Genesis chapter 21, 9... Ishmael was persecuting, making fun of, mocking Isaac. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Christians in the first century were persecuted by Jews and Gentiles alike. But the world has always despised the Lord and his children, always. I know we complain about persecution here in the United States because of things we see on the news or what have you, but... Our persecution is very, very mild here in the United States. When Glenn and I were out (laughs) uh, giving those Bibles out yesterday at Walmart, there were sirens. I heard sirens. And this police car pulls up, and he's coming right to me. He's got his siren on. He's coming right to me. And I'm like, oh, I know what this is. Somebody has complained that we're harassing folks in the Walmart parking lot, and the police are coming to shut us down. The police officer pulls up to me, rolls his window down, and he says... We've got a report of an accident here in the parking lot. Did you see anything? And I said, no, I didn't see anything. I said, but how would you like to have $100 million? And I added to it to And then a fire truck came and an ambulance came. There was an accident somewhere. I didn't see it. But I'll tell you, Glenn and I were talking about this. I saw lots of close calls in that parking lot. I mean, people don't know how to drive around here. It's crazy. But there weren't any accidents. But they were like, this close. Anyway, our world has always despised the Lord and his children. And our persecution here is quite mild. You can still go to Walmart and give out Bibles. But around the world, Christians are severely persecuted. The last statistics I found, 200 million now face violence, prison, torture, and death because of their faith in Christ. 400 million now face legal discrimination and oppression because of their faith in Christ. And over 300 Christians die every single day because they're persecuted. And that's now, modern times. I'm not talking about Rome. I'm talking about now. The good news is persecution can become an occasion for witnessing. Because no matter how bad they press us, no matter how they try to hurt us, if we have genuine faith in Christ, we will stand firm. And even if it means our death, we will proclaim Christ even in death. And so there's practical value. We're children of the promise like Isaac was. We are persecuted like Isaac was. And we are free in Christ. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We are free in Christ. Christianity is not rules and regulations. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, like I always do, have you received true spiritual freedom? There's only one way to be truly spiritually free. And that's by inviting Jesus Christ into your heart to be your Savior. Believing He died on the cross to pay for your sins, that He was buried for your sins, and He rose again the third day. This is how to achieve, this is how, achieve's the wrong word, this is how to receive true spiritual freedom. Because if you're here obeying rules, trying to be a good person, trying to make sure you come to church and Sunday school just to check off those boxes to make God happy. You're no different than the Jews and the Judaizers from the first century. God doesn't want rules and regulations. He wants a relationship. And that relationship comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's yours and it's mine for free. Jesus paid it all. Should have played that one tonight. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Are you free in Christ? If not, tonight, let tonight be the night. Receive Christ. And as Jesus himself said, if the Son will make you free, you'll be free indeed. So what value is this Old Testament? Should we be like those other churches say, well, you know, that's old stuff. That's the old covenant. Uh, That doesn't apply to us anymore. No. There is great value in the Old Testament. It has historical value. It has allegorical value. It has practical value. Yes, even the genealogies. Even the genealogies. Make sure you are free in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight to sing your praises, to hear your word. Thank you for how gracious you are to us. And thank you that we are not severely persecuted in our country. We know that time must come. And Lord, we know when it does, it will be good for the church. It will be good for the kingdom of God. We don't want it. We're not asking for it. But we know it will do a world of good. And so, Father, may we be faithful whether we're persecuted or not. May we accept all of your word as your word, not just parts of it, realizing the great value that you have given us in what we call the Holy Bible. May we be faithful to you. May we be faithful to your word. May we be faithful to our relationship. And may you bless us accordingly. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. Thank you.